the stories of entrepreneurs and how they overcame the struggles and challenges to get where they are today. This is Believe in the Entrepreneur with Joel Sandoval, CPA. What's going on? Welcome to another episode of Believe in the Entrepreneur. And I'm super excited because I have Adam McBride on the show who's traveled all the way from Florida to come visit me. So Adam, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So for those that don't know Adam, he's actually um, been in the mortgage business for over a decade and specializes in unique programs to help clients get approved without the traditional qualifications. Uh, but Adam, for those that don't know you, why don't we take it back? Like um, even before you got into mortgage, you know, how did you even become, how did you get into the mortgage business? Um, yeah. So originally uh, I was pretty much looking for work, right? Um, this was in high school, right out of college, um, summers in between college per se. Um, and a God, my godfather actually um, was in the mortgage business and said, hey, you know, we have an opportunity for you to kind of be an assistant role or, um, you know, kind of more of a paper pushing role just to get an idea of what the mortgage business is. Would you be interested? And I said, you know, of course. Um, so I took that opportunity to kind of really understand the ins and outs of, um, you know, exactly what goes into a mortgage because, you know, believe it or not, that's not something that's commonly taught right. about education, um, you know, in high school or college. Um, so it was something that was interesting to me, obviously. And, um, you know, that's kind of how it all started. Okay, cool. <clears throat> so you actually had your godfather who kind of gave you an opportunity to kind of learn this business and you just kind of ran with it. Um, and did you fall in love with it right away? Or is that something that you learned to, to kind of fall in love with? Yeah, no, um, I would say that I definitely didn't fall in love with it right away. Right. Um, I guess, you know, when you're early on in, you know, whatever it is you're looking to do in life, um, you've got to really understand why, you know, that what your work does and what kind of impact that you play, um, on humanity. Right. I think that's ultimately why every person out here, um, you know, your podcast is all about the entrepreneur, right? Right. Um, so for me, it was like, well, what is a mortgage loan originator? What do they do? What kind of impact do they have? And really it's the uh, number one, being able to educate people on, you know, what it takes to become a homeowner, to have the American dream per se. Um, and then number two, it's the smile that you get to see them have when they actually go to the closing table and you're able to actually make a serious impact on those people people or those families lives. Um, and you know, it's also a relationship game too, right? Um, you know, a lot of my clients from whether they were first time home buyers, downsizers, um, people that were just, um, you know, seeking advice. Um, they tend to typically really rely on that advice. And you know, that to me is, is huge in terms of the impact that I can have just, just through my knowledge and through things that I've learned, um, you know, throughout my time. So. Cool. So were you kind of like, um, did you think impact right away? Cause for me, you know, kind of like when I decided to become a CPA, it wasn't really for impact. It was more for selfish reasons. Like, you know, I, uh, I, I mean, I kind of, the industry kind of aligned with my personality, my goals and who I was, but really it was so I could become successful. You know, I knew CPAs. So was there any selfish motive behind it or was it like an impact since day one? Well, look, I mean, I think at the end of the day, everyone works to make a living, right? To make ends meet, to make money, right? Um, you know, I saw the ability, um, you know, 
I, I, I've seen the numbers of what certain loan originators close, how that relates to the earnings and the living that they made. Um, and to me, that was obviously the selfish aspect of me saying, hey, you know, this is something that if you put in the time, if you make your phone calls, if you understand and apply yourself, there's definitely a lot of, you know, money to be made, right? So that I, I would say that's the selfish aspect of it, right? Um, but to me also, you know, I, I remember this specific question being asked my godfather. I was like, why, why do you do this? Like, what, mm. you know, what makes it so, so that you come to work every day and you deal with, you know, the headaches, the fires, everything that you need to deal with, because it can be a very stressful business, right? I mean, right. you're dealing with typically what's the number one purchase of any person's life, uh, the largest purchase, a big ticket item, such as a home, um, you know, you can bet that there's going to be some headaches, there's going to be some issues that arise, and you need to keep a cool, calm head. So what makes you ultimately, you know, what it makes you tick in order to come into work every day? And it was really, you know, we like to see people get into homes. Um, you know, that right there is is huge for their advancement in life for financial purposes. And just, you know, overall status too, right? You know, you're a homeowner now. So, um, you know, I guess it's twofold, right? Selfish because, you know, I, I can see what, what can be made in this business and also the impact of just, you know, being able to help people become homeowners. Awesome. So you actually had your, basically your godfather who kind of seemed like was a mentor uh, who kind of guided you because, you know, for me, it's always been that mentor who kind of made me look at things from a different perspective. And obviously, you know, when he asks you, you know, why do you even come to work every day? You know, what, what's the reason that you're getting up in the morning? It kind of made you kind of realize, you know, okay, well, I'm in this to, to make a difference in people's lives, right? And so th that kind of pushed you to, to kind of move forward. 100%. <clears throat> cool. So, um, you know, one of the things that obviously makes you unique is that you do loans outside of the traditional mortgage. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, I like to focus on the, what's called the non QM space and what non QM stands for is non qualified mortgage. Um, these are types of mortgages that are kind of outside of the box underwriting scenarios. Um, when most people think mortgage and they think of your standard loan, they think of a, you know, standard W2 salaried borrower, um, you know, that can qualify based upon their gross income that's going to be steady for each year because that's what they've signed a contract with their employer for. But, you know, as, as I'm sure you're aware, you probably deal with a lot of self-employed individuals that, um, you know, ultimately are trying to lower their gross taxable income right. through the different avenues that you tell them that they can do so. Um, but when you look at traditional underwriting guidelines, it states that we have to look at their net income, right? Right. So a lot of self-employed individuals, when they go to get a mortgage, they're making X amount each year and they think they can go and qualify for that million dollar home. But what they're showing on paper doesn't necessarily put them in a category to allow them to do so. Right. So what we do is, you know, we take a different approach, a more common sense approach um, and we look at the actual cash flow of the business, right? We'll look at the, de uh, the business bank statements and we'll look at the deposits coming into those bank statements, typically on a 12 to 24 month period. Um, and then we'll apply an expense ratio in order to determine their income. But nine times out of 10, um, what I've found is typically using that approach will allow them to qualify for much more of a home, right? 
So, you know, that's one example of a non-QM product, right? You have a bunch of different examples. There's asset depletion loans, which are for people that, you know, have a lot of assets but might not have a lot of income, right? Mm -hmm. You know, most traditional loans, there's always going to be a debt-to-income ratio looked at, and they're going to make sure that you have some type of income coming in. So you have maybe some like a retired person mm-hmm. that's sitting on a lot of assets, says they want to go purchase a second home or whatever it may be, a primary residence, but they can't do so because they don't have any income. It, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's how after the reform of after, you know, 2008 and the housing crisis, uh, Dodd-Frank was put into place, which is essentially legislation that kind of put into these new, you know, underwriting guidelines. Um, but, you know, they're somewhat... I don't want to say predatory, but they, they don't allow certain people to qualify for mortgages that are otherwise qualified. They just aren't on paper from an income perspective. Um, so like I said, asset depletion, we work with a lot of real estate investors that do debt service coverage loans, which are essentially loans that go off the cash flow of, a, of an asset as opposed to you know, a debt to income ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, hey, you're purchasing an investment property. How much is that property going to produce an income? What's your mortgage payment? those meet on a one-to-one basis, we'll go ahead and extend financing as long as you have good credit, you know, good assets, things of that nature. So again, just a lot more common sense approach um, to lending. And, you know, I've found that to be really successful and especially in today's market, I think that, you know, more and more people are trying to become creative in the terms of, in, in terms of how they're looking to provide income for their families. Um, and you know, not everyone is fitting into that W2 salaried box anymore. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's pretty interesting that, you know, someone in the mortgage industry industry can actually have creative financing. Cause most of the time when I think of creative financing, I think like hard money loans, private, private money. Uh, but you're able to do it from a bank, almost from a bank perspective, just different qualifications. Right. Um, so like for the example, the bank statement loans, I think that's the first one you mentioned. Um, uh, how, I mean, are you guys obviously not doing any accounting work? So like, how is it just a, a matter of adding up all the deposits and all the withdrawals and that's it or? Yeah. So in terms of how that specifically works, number one, we do require, because we're not looking at tax returns, right? We're going to the secretary of state website. We're searching for that business, that LLC name. We're making sure that that is a true business. Number one, Mm -hmm. number two, we're asking for a CPA letter. So we contact you if you were the uh, business owner CPA and we'd say, we need you to write a letter that states that they've been self-employed for at least two years, that their business is active in good standing, which typically you can find from the secretary of state website. um, And then their percentage ownership of the business. So that's kind of just laying the ground in terms of hey, yes, this person is legit. They do have a self-employed business. Because the other way to look at that from a more qualified perspective is say, okay, you have tax returns. You know, that's very, but we're not even looking at tax returns, right? Wow. So, but in order to qualify, we look at the deposits into the bank account, right? So $10,000 each month going into the account, that's great. We'll typically apply a 50% expense ratio for most standard businesses. Now, okay. If you're importing machinery, doing this, reselling, stuff like that, it might be a little bit higher. Mm-hmm. But typically, we can use a 50% expense ratio. And that's how we can go about just determining income. We really aren't doing a P&L um, or anything like that. It's really just about the cash flow of the business, how much is coming in. Um, like I said, hitting them with the 50% expense ratio and then seeing 
what that looks like from an income perspective. But that's kind of how income is determined. Um, now we can go lower on the expense ratio with a verified CPA letter stating what their expense ratio is. Mm, gotcha. That's pretty interesting because I feel like some of this stuff, like this creative financing, um, almost is what caused the you know the housing market to crash back in 08. Um, cause let's say 50% of expenses or 50% of your deposits are expenses that may not actually be the, the facts based on the return. Right. Right. So, um, how is, how is the bank able to justify that? They just haven't seen enough foreclosures to not, to not like stop these loans from continuing to generate. Or? Well, so these loans have actually been around for about 10 years now. I think now they're starting to come a lot more into the spotlight. If you actually go to a lot of different investors, for example, the calibers of the world, they're starting their own non-QM suite. Um, to get to your question of, you know, how this is all relative, um, I mean, look, at the end of the day, these aren't going to be considered more riskier loans, right? And, you know, I'm not the ones writing the guidelines for these loans. I'm simply originating them based upon the guidelines. Right. Um, but with that risk, comes, um, you know, a little bit of a higher interest rate, right? So you were referencing hard money loans, right? Mm -hmm. Versus your standard conventional financing loans. Well, hard money is typically five to 6% higher mm -hmm. than your standard. So this meets somewhere in the middle. Right? Gotcha. So there is somewhat of a trade-off versus going with this. And, you know, I'm sure you've probably had a lot of um, clients come to you and say, hey, look, you know, I'm trying to qualify for a home next year. Like, what can we do to make it sh so that I can actually qualify? And what I would say is we typically make that a three-way conversation of, hey, well, does it make sense if they can legally obviously write off these expenses and lower their taxable income so that they can save $50,000 a year? Does it make sense for them to go a little bit higher in interest rate so that they're only paying $20,000 higher in interest? You know, it's still a net savings of $30,000. And that's the way I try to get my, you know, self-employed clients to look at it. Um, you know, I'm not sure that I necessarily answered your question with regards to uh, foreclosures and things of that nature. But I would say that these types of loans, credit score is plays a pretty large factor. Mm. And the overall credit rating, um, you know, is still above, I believe, I think it's around the 715 to 720 range, which, mm. you know, these are good borrowers, right? You know, any, any type of smart self-employed individual, as you're aware, is going to do exactly what they can do to lower their taxable income. And, but uh, as I'm sure you're probably aware, you see their balance sheets and what's not, they do have, you know, assets to go ahead and buy these homes. Um, you know, they just prefer to pay, not pay as much taxes. Right. So, right. So it's providing that outlet. Um, you know, in terms of the way that they're underwritten, the guidelines are written, I, you know, I can't really speak to that. I don't believe that there's been a lot of foreclosures with these types of mortgages. Like I said, they've been around for over 10 years now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it just kind of is what it is. Gotcha. <clears throat> well, I think what's interesting is that the credit score actually plays a big part of it because it might show that, hey, um, it's still a good borrower, you know, regardless of what the financials show uh, or if maybe they don't even have one. Right. Because they're just simply self-employed. Most self-employed individuals that I know, it's like they don't even know where their money is going. They don't know how much money they're making. So nonetheless, hopefully they know their deposits at least. Right. Um, so that's pretty cool that you can do that. Now, like for someone that you another product you mentioned is also, you know, someone that doesn't have any income and they simply just have assets. So how does the bank, I guess, what are the underwriting guidelines to say, that to say, OK, yeah, they can afford to. Are they just going to take a reverse mortgage of some kind or 
No. So for an asset depletion loan, what they will do is they'll typically say that, number one, they want you to have, there's a there's a, actually a couple different ways that you can do this, but I'll just give you one. Um, they want to say that, okay, let's take whatever your final loan amount is going to be, say it's $300,000. You must have three, 110%. So $330,000 left over in funds after you back out your down payment and your closing costs, right? Mm. So somebody has 500,000 down payment and closing costs are 100,000. That leaves them with 400, mm. you follow? Yeah. And uh, their loan amounts 330, uh, or excuse me, 300. So they need 330. So then what they will do is they'll take the $400,000 left they have in assets and they'll typically divide them over like a seven or eight year period. Um, and they'll use that as an income figure to determine debt to income ratio. Gotcha. So that's like one example. Another example is, you know, they'll, they want you to hundred percent always have more than your loan amount after closing. And I think that's pretty fair, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have more than what your final loan amount is in the bank, mm -hmm. technically you do have the ability to pay off that loan at that point in time. Right. Right. Um, Another one is they'll take all of your liabilities on your credit report. They'll multiply it by 60, including your taxes and your insurance. Um, and they want you to have that amount plus your loan amount in the bank after closing. So five years of expenses plus your loan amount, and then we'll write the loan. Gotcha. That's pretty interesting that <clears throat> there's so many options available because I think that, you know, one of the things that I see on my side of the business, you know, the tax side is how much income do I need to report, you know, in order to... I qualify for a loan and i'm always you know my advice is always like hey you should that's not really a question you should be asking in my opinion it's you know you should be saying hey this is my income these are my expenses can you prepare my return and then based on that tax return what do i qualify for right because that's really what the irs wants to see is that you're being honest on your return and then obviously some people don't qualify for a loan and uh because either they have too many expenses their income's too low, like you're saying, the net profit, or, you know, vice versa. If it's, they don't have enough expenses, then they're paying too much in taxes. Um, so I always say, hey, just report all your income, report all your expenses. Uh, we have tax strategies to help reduce your tax liability if, if you're worried about how much you're going to pay in tax. And, you know, depreciation obviously is a big one that we use that actually is usually added back anyway on the loan, right? Right. Yes. So, um, when someone, you know, obviously you come across these these buyers, I mean, what is your experience? Do you like normally work with a tax person to like mess with the numbers or like what what kind or what's your experience usually during that time? Yeah, well, I mean, look, I completely understand and agree with what you're saying as well, right? From a perspective of, hey, this is my income, these are my expenses, you know, let's report what they actually are. Um, you know, and I think that that's fair and that's obviously exactly what the IRS wants every single person to do, but I don't know how heavily the IRS and the people writing standard mortgage guidelines really thought to work together because, you know, that's not something that ultimately leads one to the other. Right. right. Um, and so to get to your question about what are my conversations with my borrowers and their CPAs? I mean, look, if they're self-employed, I'll say, look, you know, you're typically going to get a draft CPA or excuse me, a draft tax return from your CPA. 
why don't I take a look at it and I'll let you know if that home that you or that home price range based upon what you're shown is going to work. Um, you know, I never get into the <laughs> nitty gritty of saying, hey, this is what you know, but I, I can say, look, your net income needs to be this in order to qualify for this. Right. Right. And if you guys can figure it out on your end, how to make that work, then, you know, that is what it is. But um, that's pretty much the extent, you know, that we that we go to. That's cool. I mean, I, I think from a from your perspective, I mean, you're just letting them know, like, hey, these this, these are the facts, yeah. you know, in order for to qualify for a loan, it needs to be at this amount. And usually when, you know, clients ask us for a draft of their tax return, we'll gladly provide it. Um, and just what ends up happening is somehow all of a sudden clients come up with additional expenses or all of a sudden, actually, I didn't have those expenses. Right, right, right. <laughs> it ends up being a little bit creative. But at the end of the day, it's their tax return, right? It's not ours. And so we just have to, if they understand their risk, you know, we, we obviously want to be ethical. Um it's their tax return. They're the ones that's going to be res- be responsible for the tax, not, you know, not us. So I'm like, hey, we're willing to work with you as long as, you know, you understand the risk. And uh, you're obviously as well trying to do everything, you know, according to the law. As, as long as you're not trying to do anything unethical, then, then I'm on board. For sure. For sure. So, I mean, do you work pretty much the same way, I would imagine? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, look, I always tell people, too, like, my number one goal is to get you the best terms possible. And the best terms possible are going to be showing me your tax returns and using that income, right? So, if we can do that route, that route's going to be always preferred. I'm just kind of letting you know there are other options available, which, you know, in would be, you know, the bank statement type of mortgages. Um, you are going to pay a little bit of a premium and rate. Um, but in terms of how I work with people, um, yeah, I'm just laying out the facts based upon how the guidelines are set. Um, you know, and that's kind of how I leave it. That's awesome. <clears throat> now, um, one of the things, so you, you actually service like all 50 states. So, like, did you have to get a license in every single state to do that? Or, or how are you able to do that? Yeah, so originally I actually started in um, Washington, D.C. area, the uh, metropolitan area around there, Maryland, D.C., and Virginia. Um, I had my state license in those three, plus North Carolina and Florida. Um, and then I heard about this other type of non-QM lending, so I decided to make the jump over to a different company who has a federal charter. Um, so any bank that's an FDIC insured bank um, that has their federal charter, um, you can essentially switch your mortgage license. You have to go through, you know, some online uh, testing and whatnot. Um, but then that allows you to be able to, you know, facilitate loans in all 50 states if that bank does have the FDIC insured. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Cool. Now, do you come across like difficulties when you're working in a state you probably haven't worked with a whole lot um, or is the process pretty much the same? Yeah, I would say um, my first loan in California was definitely something like that. Um, you know, it's it's interesting in terms of how they close escrow out here versus when recording is, when funding is, um, you know, when docs need to be prepared. Um, but in terms of different states other than California, I would say for the most part, it's it's pretty similar. I like to try to stay in front of things, to, you know, specifically calling that title company and making sure is there anything I should be aware of, you know, prior to settlement, we've got closing here in two weeks, I want to make sure that my team's on top of whatever needs to happen in order for this transaction to close on time, because that's the number one priority, in my opinion. Um, And, 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, for the most part, it's it's pretty similar across most states. There are a few oddities here and there, um, but you know, for the most part, it's pretty similar. Yeah, it's funny how you said California because even like uh, other CPAs that I that I know that work in other states are like, I'll work in any state besides California, because like, <laughs> yeah. it's just it's just like the anomaly, you know, is just completely different than all the other states. Uh, but that's cool that you're able to kind of figure it out even when it's not really the same or that you're able to do that. Um, <clears throat> so I guess the, the next question would be is, um, you know, if someone, you know, obviously whenever someone's trying to qualify for a mortgage, um, you usually ask for like a pre-qualification letter when they're trying to buy. Uh, but sometimes like I come across where mortgage lenders actually give a pre-qualification letter and they haven't really done a whole lot of due diligence and maybe they're not really qualified. Like, for example, I had my, my, my parents actually own an apartment complex and the buyer had a pre-qualification letter. Turns out that the actual lender did not do their due diligence. They just kind of gave a pre-qualification letter. That loan process ended up getting delayed by like months. They ended up having to change mortgage brokers to one that actually knew what he was doing and all because they had the wrong lender. So like, I mean, if someone's going to give a pre-qualification letter, like for me now, I'm like very almost want to like find out if they actually are pre-qualified. Like that letter doesn't have as much weight for me. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah. what, what are some of you, what is your experience with that? Yeah. Well, um, number one, I have way too much pride, um, to put my name on a pre-approval letter for someone who I have not do, done any due diligence on, that's just completely un, uh, unprofessional in my opinion and something that I will never, ever do. Um, you know, they say the difference in between a pre-qualification letter and a pre-approval letter is a pre-qualification letter is essentially somebody has a conversation on the phone. Mm. Okay, this is your income. This is your monthly debts. This is your assets. I don't even really know what a pre-qualification, it's not even in my vocabulary. I mm. send pre-approval letters, which are, hey, I have verified my borrower's credit score. I have verified their income assets. I've verified their asset documentation. I know that they will go to the closing table, and I know that they have what it takes to get to the closing table. So when I do that, I, I'm putting my name on something that's going to be presented to a listing agent um, You know, in whatever community that listing agent is, I want sure make sure that my name, you know, is something to be able to look out for and say, Hey, this is going to be cool. We know that this one's going to go to the closing table. So when they go to present the offers to the sellers, um, you know, at the end of the day, that's something they can do with a lot of confidence. Um, so to get back to, you know, your point about pre-qualification letters and faulty lenders and this, that, and whatever, I don't know what that's, that's really like. That's not the way that I was raised. That's not how I do things. I know that that is unfortunately out there. Um, there are people that do that without actually verifying any type of documentation. I think it's uh, ridiculous because you're just wasting a lot of people's time at the end of the day. Right. Um, but yeah, that's not something that that I'm uh, very fond of. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, um, and that, I think it also comes down to also looking at who the lender is and making sure that they have a good reputation as well. And it's like if you know that that lender, you can count on them. Which is why, like a lot of here in California, a lot of construction or developers, like, hey, these are our preferred lenders, and they usually even give incentives. Like, if you use one of these preferred lenders, we'll give you, we'll pay for one percent of the closing costs or whatever it is, uh, just because they know that that loan will actually close. 
Uh, if yeah, they use that. It's funny that you mentioned that though, because typically, I mean, that's a hundred percent a thing for sure. People want to work with people that they know, right? That's just the nature of any, any type of business. They want to make sure that obviously if, if something's being said that it's going to be done, um, you know, but the, th- the builder in terms of the lender relationship, those relationships, when they say that they can give you 1% of the closing costs, typically that cost is actually factored into the home. Right. right? You know, so, yeah. <laughs> so it's, but trust me, because the thing is, is I get a lot of people that call me and they say, Hey, look, you know, this lender is not really, tr- I'm, I'm, it's not really working out. Right. And they want to seek my services. And I'm like, look, they're giving you that 1%. I'm not going to be able to match that because that's something that they have an agreement with them. I'm like, you need to close with these people because it just doesn't make sense financially for you to switch over based upon the rate and closing costs that I'll give you versus what they can. It's just not something that I'll be able to compete with. Right. And it's interesting, but they're actually are paying for it. It's just that the, the builder, exactly. the developer actually just increased their, their price by that percentage. Right now. Um, you know, along that lines, like one of the things that I always, I was like, man, I wish I was almost like, I considered, you know, one of the person, you know, somebody asked me once like, hey, are, do you think that you could be more successful in real estate? Because I actually have my real estate license. So I was like, do you think you could have been more successful in real estate versus you as a CPA? Um, and I, my answer was, well, to me, you can be successful in any industry, right? There's always successful people in every industry and there's also unsuccessful people in every industry. So no, my answer is like, I would have been probably the same, same as successful as I would have been. Um, I just had to have the passion for it. And I had more passion for accounting than I did for real estate. But one of the things that I'm kind of, I guess, a little envious of, I guess you could say is like for a CPA, like we always have to be really good at presenting value to clients because we always have to sell our services for a price. Like, hey, our, our fees are, for example, our fees here at Sandoval Tax CPAs are anywhere between $500 a month to $5,000 a month. And then we have to be able to justify that fee to the client and make, make sure it makes sense to them. But people in the mortgage industry or in real estate, they're most clients, at least, at least, you know, they don't really look at, oh, how much is this lender charging me? They're almost like, okay, what's, what's the, uh, the payment amount of the mortgage and can I afford it? And they don't realize that they're paying X amount in, in lender fees. And I'm like, man, how are they getting away with this? And Yeah, well, you know, I would say to your thought process on that, you know, lenders get shopped, right? More, a, a lot, right? So in today's day and age, it's okay, this is what you can provide me. Well, let me go to this bank and see what they can provide me in this bank. They can provide me. Right. Mm. And I'll lose on, on some deals just because some banks can provide better rates than I can. Now I can also say that the bank that I work for now, we're actually a broker shop, which means we go directly to the end investor. So there's no real middleman, right? So if you're on the retail side, meaning work for a bank that has their in-house processing underwriting, Um, they have a lot of other people, a lot of overhead, right. That they have to account for their rates are going to have to be a little bit higher because they need to make up for the overall overhead that they have. Um, being on the side that I'm at, I'm very confident that I can offer you the best interest rates that are out there because we're going straight to the investor who's doing the processing, doing the underwriting, doing everything of that nature. Um, but getting back to the whole, you know, fee based, service that you provide versus what we provide. Um, 
I would say that the thought process is probably right, but the <laughs> difference would probably be, you know, I guess you, you would be getting compared to other CPAs. Right. right. Um, but I guess we don't, we're not really the ones that set the price. It's the market that sets the price, I guess, is if you could say that, which is probably the same you could say about yourself, but <laughs> right. Yeah. That's pretty interesting though, because so even mortgage, you know, lenders are still getting shopped around. But is the determining factor just the interest rate, really, that what you find is that what's how you're able to compete? Um, interest rate? Well, I mean, everything's you, you have to really understand it. And that's also what I pride myself on is like, look, section. So you have a loan estimate, right? That's mm -hmm. the number one document you're going to want to look at as a borrower. You're going to want to look at the second page of the loan estimate. And you're going to want to look at section A and section B because those are going to be your lender fees, lender based fees, right? Everyone's going to have an appraisal fee. You got to get an appraisal to get done. That's going to be in section B. But section A specifically, you want to make sure that you harp on that because some lenders will say, hey, yeah, we got you this rate. Um, you know, it's the lowest rate out there, but they're charging you two points up front where the other lenders not charging any points. The rate's a quarter of a higher. I can get you that same rate, but I'm not charging you two. I'll charge you one. Mm. So you got to make sure that you're comparing apples to apples when you are looking at loan estimates from two different lenders um because at the end of the day like i said you know some people are out there just to put the best rate in front of you and it to a naive borrower that doesn't really know what they're looking at they'll say oh yeah let's go and then you know you get to closing table and you're like oh wow my closing costs are now six thousand dollars higher than they would have been going with the other lender who you know who knows if they could have matched it or whatnot so right now do you have that happen often though where like people are actually scrutinizing the actual loan costs and the loan fees or is it more just like hey we've we got the loan approved and that's really what matters and, and they can afford the payment. Well, listen, I mean, I think that you have to, you know, everything's service-based as well, right? I, I, I'm available 24-7 to most of my clients because I understand that they're looking at real estate when they're off their nine to fives typically, you know, so that means night times, that means the weekends. Um, so service is, is a huge part. And I think I'd like to think uh, a huge part in terms of why my clients choose to go with me. But at the end of the day, everyone, there's so much information out there in terms of interest rates and, you know, comparing banks and this and that, that people are well informed. So they know what the market is. And you also want to be able to offer them the best terms as well. So I think that kind of mixture of service. And then you also, you know, I think it's my duty to make sure that they understand this is this rate. This is how much this rate costs. You can always buy down your interest rate, pay more up front, but you really need to understand this as a homeowner because, you know, it's going to happen every single time you purchase a home. And it's, it's a huge part of, of actually the financing process. So I make sure, you know, it's my duty, in my opinion, to make sure that they understand that. Yeah, 100 percent. I think you build more trust that way, too. And it just kind of word of mouth just starts to spread because it's, you know, they're not going to go to any other mortgage lender when they know that someone's honest, truthful, and, and just really just looking out in their best interest. Um, so I guess uh, my question is like, do you, based on like the m number of mortgages that you're doing, are you seeing more traditional mortgages? Or are you seeing more of these non-traditional? Like what's the percentage be between each two? Yeah. Um, well, you know, it, it's, it's going to be relevant to the market that you're in. Um, I would say that the overall market share, it's actually a really good question that I planned on looking into, but I don't think the non-QM market is probably more than, I want to say, probably 10% of the market overall. Mm. I, I, 
I would probably venture to say it's probably somewhere in like the six to 10% range. So we're not talking about a huge market share here. Mm. Um, I think that it is going to change and become more because honestly, just more people are talking about it three years ago or two years ago when I kind of started to focus in on this, um, the company that I used to work for, they actually had marketing set up specifically towards this type Mm. of program. So I was taking a lot more of those calls when I was working for that company. And that's kind of why I tried to, you know, make myself into the non-QM type of lender, right? Like I know these programs, a lot of the, a lot of the other loan officers that, you know, have made a very decent living off the refinance boom and, um, you know, lower interest rates types programs, they just weren't really serving that market, right? They see a, they see a client that shows, you know, $30,000 on their, on income, on their taxes, they're saying, sorry, can't help you, you know? And then that's when I come in and I say, Hey, look, there, there's other options out there for you. Um, you know, so, but with regards to the non-QM space, like I said, it's not a, it's not a huge market at this point in time. Um, but it is definitely increasing. Gotcha. Yeah, I think more more people are actually speaking about it, which, like you said, it just becoming becoming more popular, which obviously might alter the percentages. Um, now, how fast though can you close on these loans? Because like I actually do, um, you know, I do hard money loans. Like I'll just um, have excess cash or excess ha- capital, like after tax season. And I have clients that are real estate investors and they're like, hey, Joel, I need a, I got a real estate property I want to buy, but I need the cash by tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Can you wire the money? I already trust them and I also review their financials, so I know that they're pretty profitable. Sure. So I don't have a problem sending it out, but they need it within 24 hours and they're willing to pay, you know, a 12% interest rate because of it. Uh, but then they end up usually refinancing, which I don't mind. And I end up getting my capital back. And they'll usually get a, you know, NQM usually because they probably don't, you know, can't qualify for traditional mortgages. So, like, how long is that process typically? Yeah, so we're talking about the bank of Joel Sandoval. Here. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so it's a great question, honestly. So you're, t- you're, you're specifically talking about real estate investors, right? People right. that are going in, they're wanting to flip a home, they're wanting to maybe rehab the home and then hold it for a long-term investment play. Um, obviously there's different financing for different types of specific things that you're looking to do with real estate. Now, to your point, the bank of Joel Sandoval can get you that money in 24 hours. So that's a huge benefactor that I cannot provide. Right. right? But what I can provide is when you need to refinance out of the bank of Joel Sandoval, I can help you do it in a way that won't allow you to, you know, Give me your tax returns, document you crazily. Look, you're a real estate investor. You're using, you know, every single tax code that you can in order to lower your taxable income. And you don't have a very common source of income, right? You know, right. everything's on, it flows through your real estate owned to probably your Schedule E, right? So, um, you know, with that being said, hard money is great for those types of people that are going to rehab. Because number one, our, our um, properties that we finance, they have to be habitable right? Mm. You can't have a hole in the roof and expect to get long-term financing. That's what I provide, right? Mm. I provide those 30-year fixed programs. Um, That's, you know, probably 95% of the loans that I provide are 30-year fixed. So um, in terms of how quickly can I close, um, I can get it done pretty quickly, especially with those 
DSCR loans is what they're called, debt, debt service coverage loans. I mean, really, it just focuses on the appraisal, really. So, you know, someone goes up and they take the hard money loan out to go ahead and, uh, you know, flip the property or, excuse me, rehab the property. But then they say, you know what, I want to hold this and I want to make this a long-term investment play, maybe Airbnb it. Who knows? What I, what I can do is I can say, all right, well, we're going to send an appraiser in there. They're going to give us a market rent, right? Based mm. upon other market rents in the area of similar properties from a bedroom, square footage, bathroom um, perspective. And then we're going to say, all right, how does this match up against your monthly mortgage payment? And then we'll underwrite the loan based upon that. So really it's for that, it's how quickly can we get an appraisal done? Um, you know, I just closed on a refinance and two of them, uh, this, well, one's going to close tomorrow and the other one's going to close on Monday, but I want to say that we did those in under 30 days. Oh, know? nice. So it's not something that takes a lot. You just got to have, you know, someone who's done it before and who knows what they're doing in order to make sure that you can get them done quickly. But, you know, it's not going to, it's not the type of financing you're going to get, you're going to get overnight though. Cool. Awesome. <clears throat> now, obviously, you know, sounds like you're pretty well versed in all the different types of mortgages, but when someone like you that has lot of options what i've seen is that they they have a lot of demand that a lot of people actually inquiring about your services uh how do you deal with capacity like do you ever are you ever like not able to take on clients or are you always able to take on clients yeah so obviously that's always a great problem to have um and it's something that um you know i personally am excited about trying to build out a team right i think that's every loan originator, every real estate professional's dream, right, is to be the head of, of a team, of a lending team, of a real estate team, where you have a bunch of buyer-seller agents underneath you, or you have other loan partners that work with you, processors and whatnot, um, that, able, that enable you to handle that type of capacity that you're talking about. Um, for me, like I said, I'll work day and night to make sure that I can service my current clientele base, but for me to take it to the next level, um, you know, yes, I am going to have to build out a team around me in order um, for me to really kind of get to that next level. And I've actually been, you know, personally preparing a lot of what needs to go into that um, in order to start implementing that. Actually, uh, this upcoming week is kind of when I'm going to start really getting after specifically making phone calls to realtors. Right. You know, the realtors are going to be your bread and butter for purchase business for any loan officer that you ask, right? Mm -hmm. You can go out there and generate leads. That's very expensive. Um, you can go out there and, you know, network and network, but unless you have actual meaningful relationships with realtors that trust you, that know that you're going to answer the phone when they call, that know you're going to treat their clients right, um, that's going to be every loan officer's bread and butter. And I plan, I actually moved to Miami uh, about two and a half years ago, and I plan to attack that market ridiculously hard over the next six months because to be honest with you i think it stack came out and they said that uh i think a third of the banks mortgage specific banks that are around right now and a third of the loan officers will not be here 12 to 24 months from now really but, so you know interest rates obviously been at all-time lows for the past year and a half two years prior to 2022 right mm -hmm. um a lot of people might have quit their jobs because the refinance money was was easy and they could go hot jump on to a bank that had these refinance leads coming in and they're not true you know sellers in the in the meaning in the aspect of going out and getting their own business which is fine and i'm not trying to you know knock anyone's way of, of making money in the mortgage business but 
now that we're in rates and they've climbed 3%, you know, from, from the lows, um, that refinance business is no longer there. So either you're going to have to figure out a way or, you know, you're probably not going to be here from 12, 24 months down. I honestly think that one, that 33%, one third is, could be a little optimistic. I think it might even be a little bit more than that. I think we're very oversaturated in terms of how much mortgage personnel is around this country. And, um, you know, it's just been a product of the market and a product of, you know, the Fed's desire to keep interest rates where they were for such a long time. Um, But, you know, I think with every change, we'll bring out the best in terms of loan officers out there. And I fully intend to be one of those. Nice. Now, a lot of people are saying that because of that, you know, interest rates going up and whatnot, that a recession might happen. Um, You know, do you see that also seeing, do you see that happening or do you kind of think that things are just going to kind of normalize? Recession? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a recession is definitely on the horizon. I mean, I I don't know how, uh, you know, everyone wants to reference the past housing crisis of 2008. I don't think that that's where we're at by any means. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I wasn't actually around lending at that point in time, so I can't speak to it, but the conversations that I've had in terms of the types of documentation or the actual no documentation that was going on, it's absolutely mind-boggling to me that that was even taking place in the first place. I think, you know, Michael Burry, the guy who was uh, the author behind The Big Short that did The Big Short himself, I think that was one of the most obvious things. If you were to tell me now, I mean, obviously everything's hindsight's 2020, but um, we're not in a place where mortgages are giving out to uncredit worthy people or people that don't have income. Now, you know, I think we're starting to see a lot of layoffs, right? Um, I think the jobs market, there was, I think the report BLS report came out pretty recently. I think it beat expectations, but I think in the next few months here, um, we're going to start seeing a lot more people probably p- apply for unemployment. Um, and I think ultimately, you know, the Fed waited too long for the in- in- inevitable, right? Right. I mean, you could only keep interest rates so low, pump so much cash into the economy, expect asset prices to, you know, prop up that high. I mean, it was, it's, it's, it's insane, but I think the real estate market specifically, and I truly really, really believe this because we're at such a low supply of homes right now in most metropolitan areas, right? Every market is different, but it's said that six months worth of supply of homes equals a price equilibrium, right? So where prices will plateau. Mm. Most uh, markets across America right now, most metro markets are somewhere between two to three months, maybe below two months in some but that, what that means is if there's no new homes that come on the market in the next, you know, forever, it would take two to three months for these homes to completely sell out. Now, six months, it's not going to be, it's, we're not going to jump to six months just like that. People aren't looking to just go ahead and sell their home beca- because they know they're locked into that low interest rate that they either purchased or they refinanced into. And if they're going to have to go purchase a new home, they're going to have a much higher interest rate. They're probably not going to be able to afford much more of a home. So why would that make sense, right? Let's, most people are going to sit. There isn't going to be a ton of supply. I think one thing I was listening to a podcast earlier today, actually, um, a point was brought up about the um, baby boomer generation and how I think they're hitting the average lifespan of around, I think it's like 73 or 74 now, mm-hmm. um, which 
that's going to, you know, not everyone can live forever. Right. So right. that could bring some supply back onto the market. Um, right. But, you know, overall, we're just at very, very low supply levels. So when people say, hey, our price is going to, you know, drop 20 to 30 to 40 percent. I personally don't think it's very likely. Mm. I don't think that, you know, I think home prices are uh, inversely related. Right. Right. To actually supply. And low supply is going to keep it up kind of where it is. Um, but who knows? I mean, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, right? Uh, right. That's, that's what I think. Um, I think it's classic economics, but we'll, we'll have to see how it shakes out. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense with the lack of supply of real estate. You know, how do you expect homes to decrease in, in value? It's not going to happen if there's a, you know, just supply and demand, like you're saying. So... You know, obviously, if prices don't decrease in real estate, um, most of the, um, you know, really the only business there is in mortgages right now, at least with interest rates rising, is the purchase business, not necessarily the refinances. So is, do you see people leaving the mortgage industry because of a lack of business now coming from it? Or, or what's kind of your theory behind, you know, tapping into the Florida market and really, you know, seeing one third of mortgage people just leave the business? Um, well, my desire to tap into the Florida market doesn't really have anything to do with whether or not there's going to be more or less uh, mortgage professionals. That's just something that I need to kick my own butt and actually do. Um, I've become a little bit too complacent with just my network, and I think I need to really hone in on one specific market. Um, so that's really kind of besides the, fe- the point. But um, with regards to, you know, the mortgage market in general, yes. Uh, you know, people are going to get laid off. It's already happening, really. Um, but because, you know, a lot of companies were at mass, mass production because you had your purchase business, you had your refinance business, you needed to make sure you could serve both those and milk the most out of it while it was there. It was just, uh, you know, it just has to happen. As the refinance business goes away, you're not going to just be able to keep every single person that you needed to service that refinance business um, you know, it's just, it's the same type of supply and demand type of thing, you know? Gotcha. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now for you, like, who's your ideal client? Like, do you work with anybody who's trying to get a mortgage or is there, are you looking, are you working with specific individuals? Like, Hey, this is the type of people that I want to work with. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, and I, I think as I, as I, grow older, uh, there's, there's certain types of people that I, I don't enjoy working with. Um, (laughs) I don't think that I'm at a point in my career where I can say I'm not going to work with, with those types of people. Um, I think everyone really, for the most part, you know, I really enjoy working with first time home buyers. Um, you know, I think that it's really great when someone wants to try to apply themselves and really learn as much as possible. And really, you can tell that they feel, uh, excited and that they feel wanted just because you're willing to talk to them and guide them through the process. So that's always a great, um, person to work with. But with that being said, also, it's great working with someone who is in real estate that you don't really have to explain much to, right? You say, Hey, this is the facts. And, um, you know, which, which option do you want to go with? And they can tell you right off the um, top of their head. But, you know, most purchasers, most good people, most people that are communicative, um, that are open to what my opinion are, is, you know, open to it, right? I'm not right. saying take it. I'm saying this is my professional opinion. Will you take it? And then, um, you know, most of the time that's greeted with 
yeah, sure. Why not? Um, so people that are open to that and then, you know, people that are just nice and ultimately, you know, I really try to make a, a relationship out of every single one of my clients and really try to get to know them and uh, whatnot. So, you know, I think that just really nice people at the end of the day is what is what I'm looking for. That's awesome. Yeah. The first time I bought my, my first house, it was probably the most exciting time. Like uh, I remember buying my house recently married and we found we actually built a brand new construction home and. I remember going to meeting with a lender with with my wife and talking about the terms and she was so like bought into it. And then we, you know, upgraded our home recently into a much, much bigger house. Now we have two daughters at, you know, at home as well. So we needed more space. Not she was not involved at all in that process. Like she's just like, get me in the new home. And, and, and it was not the same experience. So. Uh, I could definitely see like first time home buyers, like just their, their excitement, right. uh, their willingness to, to just listen to your advice just because they're just so excited for that, that American dream. Right. Well, so let me ask you though. So do, would you prefer the first time or the second time? I mean, as a, as a borrower, um, it was just a different experience, I would say. And I was in a different point in my life. So like, for example, when I was when I purchased my first home, I was just excited that I was going to be a homeowner. Um, you know, I was still in my mid twenties at the time, and it was a house that I was going to live in, you know, with my wife with, and hopefully build, you know, kids with, and have, you know, have kids there. And the second now, it's like you know, I have a business. I'm so busy. I don't even have time to like even Keep up do with the paperwork. And yeah, every single request and whatnot. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I hear you on that. Yeah, so I just think it's a, a different, like, I would not want to go and sit down, and I was just like, here's all my financials, give me the loan, like, let's close. Well, to that point, one thing that, you know, anyone listening or hearing this uh, would say is, we're not asking you for anything that we don't need. I know that it can be taxing at times in terms of the documentation that, we, that that's required, but at the end of the day... You know, we have your best interest in mind. We're trying to get this loan closed and get you into the home. And, you know, these banks wouldn't give, be giving people hundreds of thousands of dollars if they didn't, you know, document their loans correctly. So, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think that's one of the probably like the the biggest, you know, process of like you provide bank statements and then it's because it's another month later. Hey, can I get your most recent bank statements? Like, I just provide that to you. I know, but I need your most recent one. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yep. That's awesome. So uh, Adam, like, what are you excited about going forward? Um, you know, obviously you've been in the mortgage industry for almost a decade. Uh, where do you see yourself? Like, what are you excited about going forward? Yeah. So, you know, I really, I don't know what it took me uh, so long. You know, like I said, I've been doing this for, like you said, almost a decade now professionally. And I've spent summers in the college, in college doing this. Um, but I, I'm really, uh, I guess confident in the place that I'm in right now in terms of my overall knowledge of the business and, um, you know, the world around me and what I can actually offer to people from, from a standpoint of educating them on mortgages. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've made a deal with myself really that, you know, I've got to put out one piece of content Monday through Friday for the rest of this year. Started that in May. Nice. Um, so I'm taking that to the next level, um, across all different social media platforms, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, um, Twitter. Um, so that was one thing to kind of build my presence as well. Um, and then really the next thing is going to be to really uh, tackle the Miami market and kind of build my base down there. I really love it down there. Um, 
you know, and ultimately try to build that team just like you've got here. And, um, you know, that's kind of where I'm at in my career and, uh, I'm excited. I'm optimistic, even though, you know, it's funny. I was, <laughs> when I was in Uber on my way to airport today, I was talking to somebody about mortgage business. And as I was getting out, he was like, Hey man, good luck. That's a dying business. Oh, no way. And, really? I, <laughs> and I just kind of looked at him and I just kind of laughed, but you know, at the end of the day, I know that you know, another podcast that I was actually listening to, and sorry to go off a little bit here, but, um, you know, people always talk about the automation of anything, right? Amazon's great because they could sell, sell books. Um, you know, they sell a lot of things great, but big ticket items, in my opinion, such as buying a home, people want that one-on-one interaction with other individuals. They want that real life opinion on, hey, you know, if you're a real estate agent, what's this neighborhood like? What's the community like? You know, things that actually no robot is going to be able, or no, no computer is going to be able to tell you, right? Right. And I think it's the same way with mortgages. They've made every single process in the mortgage automated to this point, um, from underwriting to processing to the way uploading documents to this to that, um, to be able to kind of kick us out, right? But I don't think that the more mortgage business is a dying business by any means. And, you know, I'm excited to kind of take the next step in my career for sure. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I think with the uh, lack of real estate, you know, like we were talking about earlier, the mortgage industry is no way going to not exist. Right. So that's pretty cool. Now, you know, building a, a social media brand, you know, pr- providing content, that's cool that you're doing that. Um, and then just really trying to tap into the Miami market. But you know, anyone listening, really, Adam can serve all 50 states, which is pretty cool. So if you're having difficulty getting a mortgage, uh, or maybe we're told that, hey, you don't qualify this year, and you want a second opinion, well, you can actually find them at the mortgage underscore ace. Um, so that way you can qualify for that dream house that you've been wanting to buy. So uh, Adam, any final words before we end the podcast? Uh, no, uh, I appreciate you having me on. I would like to actually ask you a few questions if you're okay with that. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, just give me one sec. You want to do that on the show or after the, after the show? Okay. We can do it after. Okay, cool, man. Anytime's cool, man. But anyway, uh, anybody can, uh, you can reach out to Adam at the mortgage underscore ace. Adam, again, thanks. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and, uh, thanks again for, for being on. Appreciate it.